Chapter Twenty Three of the Alhambra: A Series of Tales and Sketches of the Moors and Spaniards by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three: Visitors to the Alhambra. It is now nearly three months since I took up my abode in the Alhambra, during which time the progress of the season has wrought many changes. When I first arrived, everything was in the freshness of May. The foliage of the trees was still tender and transparent. The pomegranate had not yet shed its brilliant crimson blossoms. The orchards of the Hinil and the Daro were in full bloom. The rocks were hung with wild flowers, and Granada seemed completely surrounded by a wilderness of roses, among which innumerable nightingales sang, not merely in the night, but all day long. The advance of summer has withered the rose and silenced the nightingale, and the distant country begins to look parched and sunburnt, though a perennial verdure reigns immediately round the city, and in the deep narrow valleys at the foot of the snow-capped mountains. The Alhambra possesses retreats graduated to the heat of the weather, among which the most peculiar is the almost subterranean apartment of the baths. This still retains its ancient oriental character, though stamped with the touching traces of decline. At the entrance, opening into a small court, formerly adorned with flowers, is a hall, moderate in size, but light and graceful in architecture. It is overlooked by a small gallery supported by marble pillars and moresco arches. An alabaster fountain in the centre of the pavement still throws up a jet of water to cool the place. On each side are deep alcoves with raised platforms, where the bathers, after their ablutions, reclined on luxurious cushions, soothed to voluptuous repose by the fragrance of the perfumed air and the notes of soft music from the gallery. Beyond this hall are the interior chambers, still more private and retired, where no light is admitted but through small apertures in the vaulted ceilings. Here was the sanctum sanctorum of female privacy, where the beauties of the harem indulged in the luxury of the baths. A soft, mysterious light reigns through the place, the broken baths are still there, and traces of ancient elegance. The prevailing silence and obscurity have made this a favorite resort of bats, who nestle during the day in the dark nooks and corners and, on being disturbed, flit mysteriously about the twilight chambers, heightening in an indescribable degree their air of desertion and decay. In this cool and elegant, though dilapidated, retreat, which has the freshness and seclusion of a grotto, I have of late passed the sultry hours of the day, emerging toward sunset, and bathing, or rather swimming, at night in the great reservoir of the main court. In this way I have been enabled in a measure to counteract the relaxing and enervating influence of the climate. My dream of absolute sovereignty, however, is at an end. 
I was roused from it lately by the report of firearms, which reverberated among the towers as if the castle had been taken by surprise. On sallying forth, I found an old cavalier with a number of domestics in possession of the Hall of Ambassadors. He was an ancient count, who had come up from his palace in Granada to pass a short time in the Alhambra for the benefit of purer air, and who, being a veteran and inveterate sportsman, was endeavouring to get an appetite for his breakfast by shooting at swallows from the balconies. It was a harmless amusement, for though, by the alertness of his attendants in loading his pieces, he was enabled to keep up a brisk fire, I could not accuse him of the death of a single swallow. Nay, the birds themselves seemed to enjoy the sport, and to deride his want of skill, skimming in circles close to the balconies, and twittering as they darted by. The arrival of this old gentleman has in some measure changed the aspect of affairs, but has likewise afforded matter for agreeable speculation. We have tacitly shared the empire between us, like the last kings of Granada, excepting that we maintain a most amicable alliance. He reigns absolute over the court of the lions and its adjacent halls, while I maintain peaceful possession of the region of the baths and the little garden of Linderaja. We take our meals together under the arcades of the court, where the fountains cool the air, and bubbling rills run along the channels of the marble pavement. In the evening a domestic circle gathers about the worthy old cavalier. The countess comes up from the city with a favorite daughter about sixteen years of age. Then there are the official dependents of the count, his chaplain, his lawyer, his secretary, his steward and other officers and agents of his extensive possessions. Thus he holds a kind of domestic court, where every person seeks to contribute to his amusement without sacrificing his own pleasure or self-respect. In fact, whatever may be said of Spanish pride, it certainly does not enter into social or domestic life. Among no people are the relations between kindred more cordial, or between superior and dependent more frank and genial. In these respects there still remains, in the provincial life of Spain, much of the vaunted simplicity of the olden times. The most interesting member of this family group, however, is the daughter of the Count, the charming, though almost infantile, little Carmen. Her form has not yet attained its maturity, but has already the exquisite symmetry and pliant grace so prevalent in this country. Her blue eyes, fair complexion, and light hair are unusual in Andalusia, and give a mildness and gentleness to her demeanour in contrast to the usual fire of Spanish beauty, but in perfect unison with the guileless and confiding innocence of her manners. She has, however, all the innate aptness and versatility of her fascinating countrywomen, and sings, dances, and plays the guitar and other instruments to admiration. A few days after taking up his residence in the Alhambra, 
The Count gave a domestic fete on his saint s day, assembling round him the members of his family and household, while several old servants came from his distant possessions to pay their reverence to him, and partake of the good cheer. This patriarchal spirit which characterized the Spanish nobility in the days of their opulence has declined with their fortunes, but some who, like the Count, still retain their ancient family possessions, keep up a little of the ancient system, and have their estates overrun and almost eaten up by generations of idle retainers. According to this magnificent old Spanish system, in which the national pride and generosity bore equal parts, a superannuated servant was never turned off, but became a charge for the rest of his days. Nay, his children and his children's children, and often their relations to the right and left, became gradually entailed upon the family. Hence the huge palaces of the Spanish nobility, which have such an air of empty ostentation from the greatness of their size, compared with the mediocrity and scantiness of their furniture, were absolutely required in the golden days of Spain by the patriarchal habits of their possessors. They were little better than vast barracks for the hereditary generations of hangers-on that battened at the expense of a Spanish noble. The worthy Count, who has estates in various parts of the kingdom, assures me that some of them barely feed the hordes of dependents nestled upon them, who consider themselves entitled to be maintained upon the place rent-free because their forefathers have been so for generations. The domestic fete of the Count broke in upon the usual still life of the Alhambra. Music and laughter resounded through its late silent halls. There were groups of the guests amusing themselves about the galleries and gardens, and officious servants from town hurrying through the courts, bearing viands to the ancient kitchen, which was again alive with the tread of cooks and scullions, and blazed with unwanted fires. The feast, for a Spanish-set dinner is literally a feast, was laid in the beautiful Moresco Hall, called La Sala de las Dos Hermanas, the saloon of the two sisters. The table groaned with abundance, and a joyous conviviality prevailed round the board, for though the Spaniards are generally an abstemious people, they are complete revellers at a banquet. For my part there was something peculiarly interesting in thus sitting at a feast in the royal halls of the Alhambra, given by the representative of one of its most renowned conquerors, for the venerable Count, though unwarlike himself, is the lineal descendant and representative of the great captain, the illustrious Gonsalvo of Cordova, whose sword he guards in the archives of his palace at Granada. The banquet ended the company adjourned to the Hall of Ambassadors. Here every one contributed to the general amusement by exerting some peculiar talent, singing, improvising, telling wonderful tales, or dancing to that all-pervading talisman of Spanish pleasure, the guitar. 
The life and charm of the whole assemblage, however, was the gifted little Carmen. She took her part in two or three scenes from Spanish comedies, exhibiting a charming dramatic talent. She gave imitations of the popular Italian singers, with singular and whimsical felicity, and a rare quality of voice. She imitated the dialects, dances, and ballads of the gypsies and the neighboring peasantry, but did everything with a facility, a neatness, a grace, and an all-pervading prettiness that were perfectly fascinating. The great charm of her performances, however, was their being free from all pretension or ambition of display. She seemed unconscious of the extent of her own talents, and in fact is accustomed only to exert them casually, like a child, for the amusement of the domestic circle. Her observation and tact must be remarkably quick, for her life is passed in the bosom of her family, and she can only have had casual and transient glances at the various characters and traits brought out impromptu in moments of domestic hilarity, like the one in question. It is pleasing to see the fondness and admiration with which every one of the household regards her. She is never spoken of, even by the domestics, by any other appellation than that of la niña, the child, an appellation which, thus applied, has something peculiarly kind and endearing in the Spanish language. Never shall I think of the Alhambra without remembering the lovely little Carmen sporting in happy and innocent girlhood in its marble halls, dancing to the sound of the Moorish castanets, or mingling the silver warbling of her voice with the music of the fountains. On this festive occasion several curious and amusing legends and traditions were told, many of which have escaped my memory but of those that most struck me I will endeavour to shape forth some entertainment for the reader. End of chapter 23